Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. How's it going? It's good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. This is an episode that I feel like really kicks off the beginning of the end of the first season. It really feels like (laughs) we're building up to something big. And I had a blast watching it. Yeah, I think that I'll have to go back and listen to our episodes, but I really believe that this episode beginning to end is such almost like just an energy boost. And, um, you know, when I think about Michael Bay movies, it's just all action, all action, all action. I think this is like the equivalent of a Michael Bay film without Michael Bay. You know, it's kind of like it's (laughs) it's got good energy all the way through. You know, we open up with a banger we close with a banger and everything in between just feels like we're constantly on the move. And I think that's the kind of the, the essence of what the Duffer brothers are doing in this particular episode called the acrobat and the flea. I thought that was a really interesting title. And you'd mentioned on the last episode that you didn't remember what it was referring to, but you did remember reacting to what it was and saying that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I totally came back. I was like, oh my God, that's why I loved it so much because it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole first season. And we'll get into this, but it's when the boys sit down with Mr. Clark, the science teacher, and he explains this metaphor of the flea and the acrobat. I just get chills kind of thinking about it. This is but, very sciencey in this episode. Yes, lots yes, of, yes, yes. Lots of, lots of theory, lots of like speculation. It's almost like, right. hey, these kids, these characters are starting to kind of hang out with us as an audience and be like, yeah, we're on this adventure with you. And like, no, we're exactly. on this adventure with you. It's, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, we're all learning together. We're yes, all it's... sort of putting the pieces <laughs> together. It's a giant classroom of fun and learning. Yeah. <laughs> well, and as you said, this is the Duffers back directing after a two episode break where Sean Levy directed. And so Duffers are back. And I think they do an incredible job with this because as I said, they really get into sort of defining what this other world or dimension is in this episode. We get the term, the upside down, which yes. I know up until this point, you've been struggling to kind of define backwards or describe or the other world or... <laughs> what this place is or what to call it. And now they have 11 basically coins it when she says upside down and they're like, yes, the upside down. So now everyone calls it the upside down and it makes perfect sense. It's it's the upside down in capitals. It's a proper noun now. I noticed that. Yeah. I was watching it on closed captions. I was like, oh, look, it's, it's actually like a proper, it's like a state, you know, the upside down, (laughs) the upside down. It's a real place. It's it's a real place that maybe we can get to, maybe we can't. Well, I guess we find out if we can get there. Yeah. 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 Well, as we like to do, let's start with that opener. Uh, like I said, it's yeah. a banger. Starts at the uh, the Hawkins lab, and uh, you know Hopper is doing his thing. He is doing his investigating off the grid a little bit. Breaks into the lab. I love the music in this sequence. It's that synth music just sort of on fire at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we get to see a little bit of uh, comedic chops from from Arbor here. Arbor, Arbor. 
Harbor. Yeah. Harbor. Yeah. Okay. We'll do that. <laughs> Levy, Levy. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just mispronounce everybody's name. At the Anthony Hopkins <laughs> laboratory. <laughs> the Anthony Hopkins <laughs> laboratory with Matthew yeah. Modine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and um, one of the things I noticed is that as we talked about before, when it comes to shooting a, a scene, you hone in on certain things and like nothing is wasted, especially in, in shows like this, where you have clues that are hidden all around. One thing I noticed as he was going through, there was an indirect shot on a stuffed tiger oh. that actually makes its reappearance or repeats itself later in the episode. It's during the day of the funeral. There's a shot where the family dog goes out to Will's fort and sits on his bed. And to the right, there is yet another tiger, oh. like a stuffed tiger that looks similar. And I'm like, what is going on here? That's very Is there significance to that? I did not even notice that. And like you, watched this episode twice, once to enjoy and once to take notes. Uh, and I did not see either stuffed tiger. Either tiger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that means something later yeah. on. And I'll feel happy if that's the case. I'll become Hopper at that point instead of his goofy deputy. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but the whole sequence, you know, it's coupled with the, uh, the Wheeler basement, the buyer's house. I'd actually forgotten um, that Lonnie makes his appearance at the end of the last episode. That's right. Um, yeah. Joyce's husband. I was like, what's he doing here? And that was something that I had a question about the second episode was what's his involvement going to be. Right. And uh, up to this point, it was very minimal. And now we get him sort of semi comforting Joyce in her house with all the, you know, the craziness, the hole in the wall, because we've just kind of finished up what has happened with her, you know, basically tearing a hole in the house, trying to get to that other place, the upside down, as we now find out. Yeah. And this is also in this opening sequence before the credits where we get that discovery. It's totally appropriate that they're using D&D fantasy to connect the dots. I think they call it the veil of shadows. That's what Dustin yeah. calls it. He's so matter of fact, when they ask, you know, how do we get there? Will you cast Shadow Walk? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Lucas is like, in real life, dummy, you know, however yeah. he says it. And it's just, it's just great. But this is really good discovery for us because what we are kind of speculating at this point actually has names. It's got some concreteness to it. We also find out that Elle can't get there. Like she's not the one. What was the question? I think it was, could she ever, has she ever been there? And she says, no. Yeah. I think she just implies that it's not possible to get there, you know, Got I, it. I, because I think they want to know if they can go there. And I think she just says no. And that may or may not be true because in this episode, we find out that she's having additional flashbacks to her experiences in the lab and that she may be steering them away from attempting to go to the upside down because mm -hmm. she knows it's it's unsafe but yeah i i just want to add that i love th that scene where dustin reads the veil of shadows description from the D, D manual and i want to read it because it gives me chills he says the veil of shadows is a dimension that is a dark reflection or echo of our world it is a place of decay and death a plane out of phase a place of monsters it is right next to you and you don't even see it. And I think it's just so perfect that, like you said, that they find a way to use the sort of fantasy world of D&D &D as an explanation to the real world supernatural things that are sort of taking place around them. I think anybody, any adult would have no way to sort of describe or put into words what these things are, but they have a game in front of them that 
has everything they need. Even the monster they call the Demogorgon from D&D, which is just, it's pretty cool. And I also like later on when Mr. Clark, when they're talking with Mr. Clark about the idea of other dimensions, he basically implies that he's very aware of the Veil of Shadows and describes it himself, which I think is kind of cool. The science teacher yeah. is also a D&D player, yeah. which is kind of cool. So what's interesting about what you're saying, Adam, is that in humanity, whether you're you know, a faith-based person or not, there are symbols and allegory that allow us to connect with the unexplained. And I think that this scene sort of exemplifies that, where obviously in the Stranger Things universe, the Demogorgon is not the name of the creature. That's what we're calling him at this point. But we, we go off the assumption that the creature is just that. He's this faceless creature. I've made mention to he's it's Slender Man because mm -hmm. I'm attaching him to what I know. And so the use of this D&D fantasy allegory or this symbolism, this veil of shadows, while, you know, Lucas represents that rational side, you know, in the real world, you couldn't cast a spell to get there. Right. It's an excellent way to sort of show off how we are able to, as human beings, try to connect those pieces to the universe or to the world that we don't understand. And so right. in the Christian faith, we connect that through parables. You know, Jesus used, used parables to tell these stories and to make connections. And his intent had specific meaning. In mythology, the idea of being able to think of a god as, you know, the god of fire or the god of wine or the god of the, the oceans to sort of explain things in a rational way. I think fantasy does that. Fantasy is a fantastic conduit. It's why I think science fiction as a means to provide social commentary is so effective because it's far enough removed that it doesn't feel preachy. But when you have shows like Star Trek The Next Generation specifically, you have all these stories that you can tell that are wrapped up in these fun intergalactic adventures. And so this, uh, this scene really does kind of exemplify that. It personifies what I think us as human beings do. We try to attach meaning to this world beyond ourselves and if we give it a name like Demogorgon or if we give it a place like the Veil of Shadows, in this case, the Upside Down. Right. I think that's what's fun about this show is that we are now rationalizing the irrational with these characters that are deep into this, whether it's Hopper or Joyce or Jonathan. While we're on this adventure with them, we're these kids, we can accept the meaning. And that conversation you mentioned at the, uh, at the reception after the funeral is so important and so entertaining. I love the fact that Mr. Clark is excited to explain these things. I love the fact that he tries to explain the essentially the multiverse or the parallel universe. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. The fact that there's another theory out there and he's able to kind of give them that explanation. Again, the acrobat and the flea, this analogy, this parable, this yeah. allegory of helping explain what this upside down world is like without ha having gone there and then he applies some science to it about magnetism and things like that and of course that pushes the the story even further in the episode but that scene itself is so great not only because of the explanation but the way that that each character responds i love that dustin kind of folds his hands like he's some kind of <laughs> yeah. old man like he's like yes i get that and then yeah. lucas continuously says theoretically Theoretically, yeah. Like, yeah. we know, you know, it's not theoretical. We like trying to figure that out. And then Mike is just continuously, we've got a lot of questions and they're, yeah. they're unapologetic about it. I mean, these are what 12 year old boys who halfway know that 
their best friend is not dead. They've just gone through a funeral that is halfway dumb because it may not be for real. And they get a chance to ask this guy these questions. And I thought like you, it's one of my favorite scenes because of all the information it gives, but just seeing Mr. Clark be more than just a side character that he actually has some significance. He's not just the AV club president or owns that cool ham radio that's now burnt to a crisp. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's cool that of all the characters, you know, we we're now the fifth episode in and we're finally getting an explanation of what this other world is. And of all the characters, it's the high school science teacher that is able to explain it to them. And the kids are kind of, you know, and just, and we are too, as we're watching and listening, we're all putting that together, as I said. And yeah, I, I love this idea. And this is again, where the title of the episode came from. But Mr. Clark says, you know, picture an acrobat standing on a tightrope. He can go forwards and backwards. That's our dimension. That rope is our dimension. And it has rules. And then he says, but what if right next to the acrobat, there's a flea? Now, the flea can also go back and forwards, just like the the man, uh, the acrobat on the tightrope. But the flea, and he says, this is where it gets really interesting. (laughs) The flea can also travel along the side of the rope or even underneath the rope. And then it's like, you know, the light bulb goes goes off in our heads and the kids, you know, everyone's like, that's it. That's what it is. We just can't do that because we're human. But this clearly this creature or this demogorgon is like the flea. It can somehow traverse the sides or the bottom and the top of this type rope of our dimension, but we can't. And like you said, they start talking about, well, how would you go there? And he, he basically implies that you would need to make a gate. You need to have enough energy, which man is not currently capable of producing, he says. But here we have Hawkins Laboratory, a part of the Department of Energy. I think that's a pretty red flag, big, big red flag there. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah. And he, he does that final thing where he like folds the plate in half. Cause he was drawing this all on a, on a paper plate and he like punches a hole through it with his pencil. And it's like, there you go. They also did something like that in that movie event horizon where he was mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the, the concept of, of a wormhole and traveling through a great distance. And he draws a line on a piece of paper, then he folds the paper and then punches a hole. And that sort of shows you how you can travel a great distance, but almost instantaneously through kind of warping of space. Right. And uh, I I love those kind of scenes and movies and shows. And he doesn't over explain it. It's not, it's not really heady. It's not like we're watching a Christopher Nolan (laughs) interstellar kind of thing, which I'm fine with too, but not for a show like this. Right. And then that kind of compels the adventure further with these three and L they're back in Mike's basement. I think this is an episode where Dustin shines, not only be looking like an adult in the, in the <laughs> re- reception, but also like a 12 or 10 or 12 year old. When the scene earlier at the funeral, he's making a joke about how, you know, Will's going to love that Jennifer's crying at his funeral. Right. Just like, <laughs> yeah. so inappropriate, but at the same time, it's so perfect for him. And he's complaining that they're not real Nilla wafers at the yeah. uh, after the, the funeral. <laughs> We're grieving because of, of all the things. That's yeah. what's most important to him. Yeah, absolutely. Snacks. I mean, the guy that brings the snacks is going <laughs> to yeah. be concerned about fake Nilla wafers, and that's a that's a real deal, man. That's a real deal. <laughs> but I love his explanation of the compass, where he's walking around looking all crazy, and they're like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Quick, get out your compasses," and he explains that due north is incorrect at this point, you know, based on where the sun is rising and setting where they are. 
due north is actually not where they're supposed to be. And that's what pushes them forward onto this little adventure, sort of like the fellowship, you know, in fellowship of the ring, they've kind of gathered and they're like, all right, we're going to do this. And I had that kind of feeling as they were going on this road metaphorically and literally where you have a lot of tension. You have two people who I think are wanting to do it to people who are not, I'm not sure up to this point, I've been questioning, you know, how much does Elle know? She's obviously nervous. She doesn't want to go. She says it's not safe. And as I connect the dots, I think it's because of her experience in the tank. Of course, we get more information about her power that (laughs) apparently water amplifies her ability to sort of telekinetically amplify voices it's called a sensory deprivation tank. It's a real okay. thing that they've experimented with where they basically put you in a giant vat of water that's at the same temperature as your body. And so you then start to have like almost like an outer body experience and, and you can and you, there's no sound, there's no sensation in your body. And so I guess that somehow amplifies certain abilities like this and or that's the intention that yeah. nothing kind of interferes with with um with your ability to sort of tap into something. In this case, she was trying to reach a Russian man yeah. speaking Russian, probably on in the, on the other side of the world right. and doing so just with her mind. Yeah. And, and, th- and that makes sense. We're in the cold war or the early parts of the yeah. cold war. So I- I'm starting to understand kind of what they're using her for that. She's sort of a spy and, and that's, that's kind of a cool concept. I yeah. think that's you know very, very much appropriate for this time period, but in the current world, in the non-flashback world, you know, she says things like, it's not safe. And I'm asking, you know, how does she know? Has she right. been there? And I think I've asked that question before. And Lucas says something at the moment when they're all in that big conflict at the very end, they get into a fight. He says, do you ever stop to think that she's the monster? And in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe she is. But I don't think she is because she's trying to stop them. Obviously, right. you know, she can't be in two places at once and she has a face and she doesn't look like Slenderman. <laughs> yeah. But it did make me wonder what her connection to the upside down is directly because she, again, she knows she can connect to will without talking to him. She knows that he's in this place and she understands the danger of that place. What I think we saw in that water tank flashback is the beginning stages of her experiences in there when she goes too deep into her ability. And I think that's what she was sensing. And so of course she sabotages the, uh, the compasses and then it leads to that, incredible fight where just like with the uh, the two dudes that were trying to restrain her she screams and just she not only pushes lucas away but she forces him into that that structure it's not like she just knocks him away from mike but she physically her energy pushes him where he goes unconscious and i'm like wow that's uncontrollable rage right there and i thought this is firestar yeah it's just getting it's getting crazy and by the end of the episode the fellowship is breaking up you know l has gone and lucas has taken off and i'm like why can't i watch episode six why can i not do this because (laughs) i'm being loyal to our podcast so (laughs) i'm excited to see if the fellowship is going to realign at some point, if they're going to go take down sauron which in this case is slender man yeah (laughs) (laughs) well and i think in that flashback sequence i think it's implied that she although we don't see it we do hear the demogorgon in that space in that sort of out of phase space that she's in where Mm -hmm. she's sort of spying on this uh russian man 
she starts the man basically disappears at one point and then you start hearing some growling and and she starts running and then it cuts but perhaps because we don't see what happens after that it kind of cuts back to the present time where all the, the kids are hanging out talking and i'm guessing that she came face to face or or at least saw this monster mm-hmm. and yeah. understands that when she goes into this upside down world or this sure. other world that she that there's stuff there that is deadlier than anything here right and so she's just doing everything she can as you said to sabotage that plan that they had which was to to use their compasses to and by the way this is right out of stand by me when they're just marching down yeah. uh, the train tracks yeah. two by two and they're all you know they're they're kind of as you said they're they're having their own separate conversations just like in stand by me it's probably the most stand by me scene thus far <laughs> without the uh, 50s music right <laughs> exactly exactly but yeah i don't know if she's had to interact with the demogorgon in any way or if she's just witnessed what it is and what it's capable of she's probably the only person alive in the show that has maybe dr brenner has some knowledge of it but in that scene someone says what is that and he says i have no idea so clearly at at this point in that flashback scene none of the characters have yet to encounter the demogorgon or any of the other creatures that might be living in this world but this also could be just one of many more flashbacks to come. So we don't know. I'm sure it is. I mean, flashbacks are, if they're few, they're not too few. In and they the seem episode. to be flashing back in chronological order, you know? Yeah, so that's good. Seeing... That's good. We're not getting memento here. This is, this yeah. is good. <laughs> can't, we're getting can't a little bit that. at a time, you know, yeah. moving forward. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Joyce. She's a, she hits to interact with Lonnie uh, a little bit here. We find out ultimately that his motive is to get money for uh, Will's apparent death by the quarry and suing the company or the city or something like that. And of course she's ultra pissed about that. Before we get to that moment, Jonathan walks in and at that point, Lonnie's being a friend to her. I honestly, at the beginning of this episode, he makes some good points. You know, he's that semi-rational, whatever his motives are, he's got some semi-rational points that he makes that um, particularly when he's talking to Jonathan, he um, is trying to get Jonathan to get her to just to calm down. You know, from his perspective, you know, he sees all these lights, he sees a giant hole in the wall, and he's and he says, honestly, you might need to kind of rethink what's happening here. And he does a little bit what Hopper does. He tries to kind of connect it to grief and connect it to being sad and being angry is normal. But of course, she's not letting that go, and we're on her side at this point. He tells Jonathan later that, you know, he wants him to comfort her, you know, make sure that things don't get crazy at the funeral. And then he finishes that scene by, by pointing to the evil dead poster and saying, take that down. It's inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and I just laughed a little bit at that because you pointed that out in the last episode where, <laughs> or maybe it was the, the previous episode. And I was like, oh, cool. It makes a little, makes a little significant uh, appearance at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not just for, for 80s reference. It's actually like <laughs> something that might trigger Jonathan's mom here. Right. But uh, but this is this is good stuff. We find out why his dad's here and, and she legit just goes off on him and their relationship is definitely unhealthy. And he, he looks at her. Uh, Lonnie looks at her as someone who can't take care of herself. And she's like, look at you. You, know, you left us. And it's very, very much not an amicable type of relationship. It's kind of like <laughs> if I need you at desperation time, I might call you. 
obviously she didn't invite him to the, well, actually, I don't know. The end of the episode didn't really indicate whether she invited him down or if he just popped in. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I think he showed up. I just think he was probably notified by the police or, you know, the funeral is taking place. I'm not sure, but clearly Jonathan and Will's mom are not uh, happy that he's there and at least not in the beginning. And, right. and like you said, they start to warm up to him a little bit until they find out and he has ulterior motives and he just wants whatever money, whatever financial gain he can get from Will's death. He's, he's looking for an opportunity basically. And, uh, you know, and they had that big fight, as you said, where they talk about, you know, what school Jonathan wants to go to. And Lonnie has no idea that he wants to go to NYU since he's six years old, NYU. <laughs> is he Rory Gilmore? Is this what he is? I, like he I don't just know. Has decided he's going to go to this particular college at six. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is he's clearly uh, has a huge interest in photography. And I know they have a big photography and film program there. So maybe it, was, it has something to do with his photography interests. Uh, there's got to be, you know, some, some rationale for why. <laughs> they picked that as the, or maybe somebody involved in the in the filmmaking team uh, went to NYU, so they threw that in. Little right? nod there, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> He's not going to be a Hoosier. It's no. just... <laughs> <laughs> and and one other thing about Jonathan, I've been racking up my brain to kind of figure out well, who does he remind me of? What? Why do I feel like I know him? And I think I put my finger on it this past viewing. I think he reminds me a little bit of a slightly older. Edward Furlong from T2, the yeah. John Connor. He just has oh, he the does. hair and the eyes and just kind of the bad boy vibe. And I just think there's something about him that makes me see John Connor in T2. Anyway, <laughs> that's just, I had to throw that in because it came out. Of, it's just something that popped into my head this viewing. Well, he's got the nutty mom to go with it. So I there mean, I, I, it wouldn't be a stretch <laughs> to say, is this, is this, is this John Connor in another universe <laughs> yeah. where he, I mean, his name's Jonathan. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you're, I don't think you're far off there, Adam. All right. <laughs> Good sleuthing. I'm there. not crazy. <laughs> you're not crazy yet. We're, we're, we're over Although, halfway through the season. Hopper gets a little crazy uh, in, oh, yes. in a great scene where he wakes up. Obviously we talked about earlier how he infiltrates the lab and I think he gets injected with something that, you know, puts him to sleep and he wakes up in his, I don't know. It's it's a house, but it kind of looks like a trailer. I, I don't know. It's like it's a, his house. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's his domain. <laughs> yeah. And he's and he which is there's pills everywhere, beer cans. I, I'm, I'm sure they tried to make it look like he just, you know, he was on a bender or something. But he clearly remembers what happened, you know. And yes. so he's he goes a little nuts and starts ripping apart his couch and breaking his phone and tearing apart everything in his apartment, looking for, for microphones or surveillance equipment. He thinks he's being, you know, bugged. And, and this totally reminded me of Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. The final scene in that movie, without giving away spoilers, is very similar to this. Uh, the main character, played by Gene Hackman, is obsessively searching his apartment for, for any kind of listening device that someone may have planted and so it, it definitely yeah. felt like uh, a little bit of a nod to that and one thing that i as i mentioned he basically broke his telephone like looking for a microphone or something and one thing i noticed upon this viewing is later in the episode he actually calls his i guess his ex-wife um mm -hmm. i'm assuming they're divorced yeah. and 
he's calling her from his phone. I was like, well, didn't he just destroy his phone? But no, if you look closely, <laughs> it's like duct tape together and you can even see oh. the roll of duct tape on the counter. So okay. they really went to like such great lengths to ensure that continuity wise, everything made sense, <laughs> like reassembled his phone and like even like the receiver is like duct taped on and uh, it just it's it it amazes me that they took the time to do that. A lesser mm -hmm. show would just be like, no, no, he's just on the phone. And yeah. they wouldn't have thought to make sure that made sense. Yeah, I think that whole scene must have been fun to shoot from a production yeah. standpoint. And I'd have to believe that they shot those scenes in order to maintain that continuity because that was a lot of destruction. Uh, the jump cuts were really cool here. This is something I want to do in film. I want to just practice the jump cut in a way that makes a lot of sense and do it in a way that kind of creates that kind of drama. He was also very sweaty, so I don't yeah. know if <laughs> I don't know if that drug just made him. <laughs> sweat profusely but he gets up and he is just in shambles but all of those things put together really create this persona of some extreme conspiracy theorist that has gone off the bend and then he follows up later by going over to Joyce's house and really unscrewing every Christmas light that she has yes. in the house I have two questions about that one Joyce has gotten uber pissed that Lonnie has taken down the lights but later when Hopper comes in, again, maybe it's their relationship, before he tells her, I think it's before he tells her that he thinks her house is bugged, he goes through and just undoes everything. Because yeah. we find out, you know, we hear him tell her that it's probably bugged. So I'm wondering, why did she not get mad at him <laughs> for doing that? And are they going to put all the lights back? Because the fact is, she put those lights up. It's not like somebody bugged the Christmas lights because she had just put them up. So I think I was kind of, again, Popper, Hopper's, you know, he's in a different state at this point. So I can understand why he would see all those lights and be like, okay, I got to unscrew all of them. But at the same time, I would expect Joyce to say, don't do that. So, yeah, I, I mean, think at this point, Joyce sees that Hopper is the only one that is starting to be on her side, right? That he thinks something else is going on, that something is being covered up, that that's not really Will, that he didn't really die, and that there's like some kind of conspiracy going on. I mean, if you think about it, Joyce would actually embrace that because it means that there's a chance her son is alive. If So here she has Hopper, who before Will goes missing, is probably the least conspiratorial person you, know, you, you could find. He's such a matter-of-fact person. Just doing his job, you know, going out at night, hooking up, drinking, going to the bar, whatever. And during the day, does his job. That's it, right? He doesn't have any, he doesn't think anything else is going on. But now, because it's happened to him, because he's experienced these events and seen things, his perception has changed. And so I think these are, in a way, two kindred spirits, right? Joyce and Hopper both now have had some really bad things happen to them. And they are kind of syncing up for the first time. And that one thing I have to say, though, is that he does end up discovering a microphone in his home. Right. It's in his light above, you know, where you, you, know, you unscrew the, the cover. And I thought to myself, well, that's really kind of a bad place for them to put a microphone. Because if one of his light bulbs went out, which can happen any time, that's one of the first places he's going to have to go to replace the light bulb. And right. he's going to see a microphone there. So you would think they would have hid it in a more secure or unlikely place that you would never go into, like inside a heating duct or something, which who unscrews a yeah. panel to a heat duct? You know, it's, it just seems like from a show standpoint, I get it. It makes sense. They just wanted it to be someplace really easy for him to spot and see. 
Yeah. But whoever whoever was working for Brenner and team and put that microphone there, I, I don't think they uh, I think they need some lessons in and where to hide those microphones. <laughs> this is very much amateur hour. Yeah, exactly. Secret government cover ups. Yeah. And what we do find out though is that the government pretty much is everywhere. Um, yeah. There's this really quick scene that uh, we alluded to earlier where somebody comes in to the AV room to see the burnt out box. And we find out later that he's actually working for the the government or the, yeah, whoever, yeah. the state. Whoever this is. Oh. Yeah, I think Hopper says it's CIA, CIA, NSA, Department of Energy. I don't know. You know, it's like one <laughs> of those. The same way. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> yeah. what are those guys? <laughs> so I also thought there was a really great line in that scene where I think it was the principal who says, apparently the less athletic types go for this stuff. I'm like, yeah. wow, apparently yeah. we know what the priority is exactly. in Hawkins, Indiana. Yep. It's football, it's sports, you know, these, they're not nerds. They're the less athletic types. <laughs> he was trying to be uh tactful pace. I don't know, but clearly we, we get, we get it that this yeah. is uh, uh, the science teacher and his little room of uh, gadgets is that's it. You know, that's the, there's like four kids that hang out in there and, the rest of the you know people in that school, hey, they're they're into the, the school spirit and sports, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that was alluded to. Like, there was a game apparently that um, that Nancy was supposed to go to with Steve and the gang, and right when she when she left to go with Jonathan, he was like, "You're gonna miss the game," and I'm like, "It's not a big deal. It's a high school, <laughs> yeah. whatever. It could be I'm... football or basketball, depending on because I think both of those sports were happening at the same time in that particular season. Like if it's fall, I think both right. sports are going on. So we'll say basketball because <laughs> yeah. I don't, I didn't see any football players up to this point. <laughs> no, no, but it is interesting. You know, you mentioned Jonathan and Nancy, they, they sort mm-hmm. of team up in this episode also in their own way to essentially, because in the last episode we talked about how they sort of uncovered by zooming in, developing that photograph of, Barb, they they got a closer look at this creature with with no face in the shadows, and so they're both on the same page now and have decided that they need to kill this thing if they can. And they look at a map and they notice that of all the places that he's been spotted, they're all within about a one mile radius. So they've come to the conclusion that it's not traveling far, like it's not able to go far from wherever it's coming from, wherever its den is. And so they decide to get some weapons. And there's a great shot where it pans over the garage and you see like a whole bunch of just everyday items, which you can see are basically options for for Nancy weapons. You know, there's (laughs) croquet mallets, there's golf clubs, baseball bats. You know, she's she's looking at all the things that she can potentially use. Uh, And Jonathan, of course, gets a gun out of I guess it's out of it's out of Lonnie's car. Yeah, yeah, he breaks into Lonnie's uh, glove compartment. Yeah, and where he has like boxes of of ammo as well mm-hmm. just hanging out there so yeah they get geared up and it kind of reminded me a little bit of like the lost boys when they get like everyday items yeah. together to fight the vampires <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah and they go marching out uh into the woods together and yeah. and and searching you know looking and mm-hmm. they do it during the day but by the end of the episode it's it's nighttime and, of course it's uh, nighttime in the woods you know, the they uh is- they yeah. uncover in the woods, a dying deer. I guess they thought it maybe got killed or hit by a car. Um, maybe then it walked slowly or limped into the woods and started dying. And they're about to shoot it to put it out of its misery when something like snatches it <laughs> and pulls it, you know, out of their view. This leads to sort of the big finale of the episode, if you will, where Nancy sees some kind of weird hole in a tree and 
decides to put her bat down and her bag, like anything that she brought with her, which was, as I said, all the weaponry or, or gear that they brought with them for the for this adventure, she decides to put down and crawl through this hole. And she ends up on the other side of the tree, which is in the upside down. And it, you know, we see the floating ash or whatever it is everywhere. Spores. I'm going to call them spores. spores. Uh, spores. Perfect word. And, uh, <laughs> and her, you know, her, she does have her flashlight. She, she, she did bring that, but it starts to flicker out very quickly. And then she sees the Demogorgon or the Slender Man or whatever you want to call it. I think it's eating the deer. I think that's what we're supposed to, we don't see a close up of it, but like in all scary movies, she looks at it, sees it from behind, then steps backwards and makes a cracking sound and it looks up <laughs> and we see I think this is our first really good close up of I mean Joyce got a pretty good look at it when it was starting to come through the the wall but this is maybe the best shot we've had of it um mm-hmm. thus far yeah and it kind of you know roars at her and she screams Jonathan then comes running looking for her but previously she was calling for him and he was nowhere to be found. So I don't, that didn't make sense. There's like some how, logic, there's yeah. some logical issues happening in this scene. And, yeah. and I, I could, I could spend the rest of the episode talking about them. I just want to highlight what I thought. First yeah. of all, why are you going in there? Why alone? It's gross. Yeah. Why alone? Why without your weaponry? And then why are you guys not together? Just you're in the woods at night. Right. I, I, I get it. And I accepted the fact that she's walking home in the woods. She did not get an Uber, as we confirmed, uh, <laughs> going back to her house after uh, yeah. going to Steve's. So I'm accepting the 80s stupidity at this point, the 80s horror stupidity. Don't go in there and you know I'll be right back, that kind of thing. Fine with that. But yeah, the fact that where where was Jonathan? Was he That's like in I'm... the car? I mean, how he, could he not hear her when even before could... she went in? He she yeah. was like Jonathan calling for him, and and she hears or sees nothing. And then she still proceeds instead of going after him and saying, "Where is he? Okay?" She still proceeds to go through this strange, pulsating hole in the side of a tree, a tree and uh, that looks deeper than the tree is wide. Yeah, and uh, doesn't think anything of it. Just decides to climb all the way through. Sure, because why not, right? Because yeah. I'm Nancy, and I swing a bat <laughs> like a girl. I mean, that's going to give me all the power in the world. It's just, it's so dumb. At one point, Adam, during this whole sequence with those two, it was really interesting. At one point, he was carrying the bat, and she was carrying the gun. And I think right. that was like, it was right after the shooting sequence. Right, because she and had better aim than he did. When she they were, really did. When they were practicing <laughs> shooting cans. The, the dialogue leading up to that, where he's missing completely, and she's like, hmm, aren't you supposed to hit the cans? He's like, no, I'm... <laughs> Trying to aim between them. He's like, you see that space between the cans? I, I, that's what I'm aiming, aiming for. <laughs> <laughs> Their dialogue in this episode is really good because we get a little bit more about her and her relationship with her parents. There's actually some resentment here, which I did yeah. not know. Like at this point, I thought mom and dad were kind of fun side characters. Dad's kind of an idiot, sitting yeah. on his lazy boy, eating his, you know, whatever. And I, yeah. I, I was fine with that. But apparently she perceives her parents relationship is sort of being very superficial very much very like loveless you know yeah very much a transaction you know yeah. mom married dad because dad came from good money very much a lot of security and jonathan kind of calls her out for trying to be yeah. this rebellious girl and i don't remember the dialogue exactly but i remember just note taking that it was really great writing that he had this great way of really just kind of pointing the mirror in her direction and saying, look, you're not unique in how you feel. You know, most suburban girls feel like they should be rebellious because 
they have this cookie cutter life that they don't want, you're not special. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, dude, Jonathan, I mean, yeah. you're wow. And he even says like, you're going to end up basically just like your mom. Right. When you get older. <laughs> yeah. She, it, it kind of catches her off guard. I don't think people talk to her that way very often. So I think that's interesting dynamic mm-hmm. that she is kind of, as I think one of the other kids called her like Miss Perfect, you know, she's just right. that good grades, always obeys the rules and the laws, doesn't do anything wrong. And all of a sudden she's starting to stray out of her comfort zone by dating Steve and just being a little more rebellious. And and he's yeah. just like, yeah, you're not fooling anybody. I know what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting. I've been around the block. I know these people. Yeah. Not you. <laughs> And that makes me think that their relationship is going to become a little bit more, well, assuming she gets out of the upside down, uh, that their relationship is going to become a little bit more complex, a little bit more intimate emotionally. Because I think yeah. that because nobody's ever talked to her that way, I think it kind of put her in a position where she respects him a little bit more. Right. And she also, you can see in earlier episodes that she does sort of care for him for some reason. She has some empathy for him and his his situation. So, And, and that could stem back to, you know, these are probably all people that have been in school together since kindergarten right and they've grown up together in a small town i know what that's like and yeah they, there's history there who knows maybe they were close friends when they were younger and they kind of drifted apart in high school right you kind mm-hmm. of fell in with different crowds but there's definitely something there and i kind of i kind of have this after this episode this hunch that there could be a little bit of a love triangle situation with Steve, Jonathan, and and Nancy, but I, I don't know. I want to give Steve some props here. He was he was cool in this episode. Like he was. He, he invited her out to see Risky Business, and I love his little. Oh no! All the right moves. All the right moves. I'm sorry. Was it all the right moves? I thought, yeah, okay. all the right moves was was sorry. playing because actually in the previous in episode four, there's a quick shot when Hopper drives out away from the library. The, his his truck goes past the town movie theater gotcha. and you see on the marquee off in the distance all the right moves okay and and it it's makes still sense Tom Cruise, though. yeah two times and yeah but he does he does mention that it stars your i think he says your lover boy from risky business that's what it is yeah. that's what it is they and never mentioned tom cruise by name though yeah oh interesting i wonder yeah. if, i wonder if they would have to you know pay rights or something maybe i don't know his name can't even be Is mentioned it, can't say maverick's name oh <laughs> yeah. i did it sorry oh no but then he then he sings the you know that old time rock and roll yeah, yeah bob seger so good man and and in that in that scene <laughs> i just remember ending that scene going i like steve still don't yeah. trust him but i like him because yeah. he doesn't push and he's like cool i get you i get what you're doing and that's fine and then of course she continues to swing the bat like a girl, which I thought was hilarious. Um, so it's it's good, but the you know the episode as you mentioned ends with this uh, zoom into the hole that is closing in on itself, right. which obviously gets me asking the question: Okay, Hopper has seen what I would call the the Stargate entrance or right. that place that is still accessible. It's just got the goo and the stuff kind of connected like a membrane, but it can be yeah. know, penetrated. That seems more like, like a permanent fissure or, or right. hole or gate. Whereas this seems to be something that along with the gate or hole in Joyce's wall, like these, there seems mm-hmm. to be other places where holes can, can form and then close up again right. at, at will. Yeah. I'm not sure how or why or, but yeah. But I mean, that, that to me says, okay, so if people can get in, people can get out. Because I feel like the monster sort of opens up these pockets to get out. And it sounds like the monster has to feed. So it has yeah, to eat yeah. things. 
it's not self uh, sustainable, I guess you could say. Yeah. Obviously not a vegetarian since it likes the deer. And it wants, and, uh, I guess it likes, it likes foreign food, right? Because it yeah. likes food from our dimension, not yeah. its own. <laughs> it's international flavor. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Man, the food in the upside down sucks. <laughs> it's just, it feels so bland. Yeah. Maybe it's backwards. Maybe the food that tastes really good out here is terrible in there. Right, right. And vice See? versa. So that's my theory. It could, it could be. <laughs> there, we, we haven't seen yet any fast food establishments in the upside True. down. So True. We, we might. We might. My prediction is if Dustin throws a nutty bar into the upside down, it's going to turn crap because nutty bars are amazing. <laughs> it seems like everything that you bring in, like Nancy brings in the flashlight, it everything, her clothes, everything stays intact. Although the, it does look like electrical appliances seem to falter. It, you know, her flashlight flickers off, stops working, which again, that could have something to do with the Department of Energy and yeah. electromagnetism, all of this, this connection that we, we seem to be seeing since the very first episode when there were power outages and and lights flickering so something about electricity i'm starting to think that this monster is a creation of experiments at hawkins lab that's sort of a theory i'm throwing out right now okay obviously it's got sentience like in a primal way it needs to eat it's attacking but this world that it lives in in conjunction with will's body being manufactured with the fact that Brenner and company are not overly surprised at what's happening here. I've got to believe that there's just, there's a connection between, and this is an obvious statement. I think anybody watching the show would make this, this point, but there's an obvious connection between the department of energy, what's being produced in Hawkins lab and this monster, but more specifically this monster's ability to survive. Because when you see that electric kind of flickering, Obviously, we saw that with Barb before she was taken. At this point, this is another thing that's kind of cool. At this point, five episodes in, Will, Barb, and Nancy have all been taken. And we know that Will's still alive. Well, we knew that he was. Barb was pulled, but we don't see a dead body. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, Nancy screams, but we don't know what's happening. So when we take a look at this, at this point, I'm thinking that the monster doesn't want to kill the monster wants to hoard or have trophies. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, but I don't see a lot of killing of humans, at least. Obviously, the the deer being the thing that we assume right. the, that the, that the Demogorgon is yeah. devouring. But the fact is, we have not seen a human that has been eaten or sacrificed or has, has perished yeah, no, it's true. It, it could very well be something like aliens where they take them, the humans, back to the hive and uh, for some other nefarious reason, right? Uh, and that, obviously, in aliens, it's to sort of impregnate them with an embryo. But, you know, who knows? There could be something else going on here. And we will probably find out <laughs> in the next three episodes remaining. So. <laughs> yeah. <I hope> so. <laughs> Well, what other stuff did you want to bring up that I have not actually gone over? Easter eggs or um, other kind of fun I mean, facts that you one saw? just interesting thing, going back to that flashback with Brenner and Eleven in what she calls the bath, which is a sensory deprivation tank. It's interesting that connection there. I'm first, Eleven says, how far, Papa? Like very like, I'm fine with this. Uh, and he goes farther than we've ever gone before. And I thought that was really interesting. So yeah. they're kind of working together here almost as a team. 
at this point in her flashbacks. <laughs> and he's very, although you can see she's scared, he's very good at sort of calming her down. He smiles at her. He even says, is that okay? And she's like, yes. And he waves yeah. to her at one point. She puts her hand up. So there's it, as evil as he does seem on the surface, there's also some tenderness and understanding there that they need each other to achieve whatever they're doing, right? That Eleven can't do this herself, can't survive on her own, or at least she doesn't think she can. And Brenner clearly needs Eleven for whatever he's doing, whatever plan he has here. I just thought that was really interesting, right? It could have easily been just like he's the evil genius scientist right. um, who's sort of torturing this poor girl, but there was something a little softer about that scene. You know, then, of course, she wakes up from this experiment screaming again, and then it cuts. So we don't really see how Brenner cared for her or, or helped her afterwards. But I just think it's, it's an interesting thing that the way they handled this particular relationship. Yeah, Brenner softened up for me in this episode. So I feel a little bit better about, about his character a little bit. Yeah. Not, and not, not, saying, he's not yeah. saying he's not a bad guy, but he's clearly <laughs> got a soft side as well. Yeah, and, he's got, there's some empathy there for sure. Yeah. And I did notice, uh, and this may have appeared in the first episode when they were playing D&D, but I did notice in Mike's basement, again, a movie poster, a classic movie poster. This time I noticed John Carpenter's The, the Thing, oh, what a good uh, movie. which is such a, it's iconic poster uh, yes. by Drew, Drew Struzan. And that it's kind of just over the shoulder of one of the characters out of focus. But I was like, that is, that's the thing. That's the, that poster from the thing. So it must've been a lot of fun for the team, for the production designing team, as well as the Duffer brothers, just to sprinkle so many of their favorite, you know, Easter eggs and homages to the movies and shows and just pop culture Mm -hmm. references from their, their childhood. Absolutely. And it makes me wonder from a production standpoint, um, replication versus authenticity, obviously, because of the fact that these things can get damaged, you want to find as many replicas as possible. So I'm always impressed with how much, if if a lot of the stuff is replicated, if it's manufactured, just how much of it is. Because we yeah. see like yeah. old televisions and rotary phones and the Atari and, you know, those things are expensive if you find them mm-hmm. in, in good condition. And so that's a lot that adds to your production value if you have to find an authentic version of this for your, for your set pieces. So yeah. uh, kudos to the production team for, building out those sets and yeah, being able to yeah. make it feel like, again, it's not a museum of nostalgia, but really feels like this is Mike's basement. Yeah. It's a lived in real, like this is where yeah this looks like it could have been shot back then and that it's not trying too hard to be a 1983 basement. It just is a 1983 basement. And yeah. I think that's, that, that comes through. And I think to what you're saying, there are companies that specialized in this kind of like they have huge you know warehouses filled with props from all different decades and okay. of all different kinds so this kind of stuff is saved it's preserved and you know it can be rented it can be hired to to use them uh, obviously if you're destroying items like that that's a different situation like when sure. hopper's ripping up his <laughs> his his uh his home all that classic furniture and his telephone all of that that who knows? Maybe then they're actually making replicas to then destroy. But yeah, uh, the, you know, and, and a lot of those movie posters are are really pretty cheap. You can go into eBay and and find authentic original posters for most of these eighties movies. You know, for okay. $30, 40 dollars, especially if they're kind of heavily used, which you know, not 
perfect mint condition, unused, framed versions. You can, uh, you know, everything you see on these walls are, are clearly used and loved <laughs> by, the, by the characters. Yeah. Appropriately enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to point out a couple of things before we finish yeah. up. The flashback with Joyce and Will was cool. We got oh, a little yeah, bit more screen yeah. time with Will. We don't since the first episode. We really haven't gotten a lot of Will Byers because right. obviously he's in the upside down, and it's hard to talk to him without lights. So <laughs> watching how she interacts with him, I love that she's kind of involved with his world. She asks him about why he's coloring with green, and he says I ran out of red. The way she says crayons is is interesting. I, I don't know how you say crayons, but she says she says crayons, crayons, crayons. It's it's interesting. Anyway, I've heard other people I, I, say it that I way. I say crayons. I say I, crayons. I, like it's yeah. it's two syllables, but yeah, <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Crayons. But she makes a comment, or he makes a comment, and says um, sometimes the bad guys are smart too, because she's referring to the fact that you know Will the Wise. Why does he need fireballs when he's smart? And I think that's obviously an allusion to the government, <laughs> potentially to the Demogorgon, giving a little bit more insight into their relationship, how how she cares about him. I yeah. also like during funeral day, seeing these characters sort of get ready for it. Uh, Jonathan's mm -hmm. nervous. He doesn't want to wear a tie. doesn't know how to do that. She doesn't want to go to the funeral. And because we know what we know, we can understand why they don't want to do this. Like you have this half mentality of like, I'm going to a funeral, not believing that my son is dead. Right. How do I respond to that? And of course we alluded to that with the three kids with Dustin making the comment about Jennifer, but there's this great little shot that pans across and you see just these different facial expressions while the preacher is kind of giving his sermon, you know, Joyce is disgusted. <laughs> She's like, she doesn't want to be there. She's like, this is so pointless. Jonathan's real pensive. You know, it feels different because we don't get to see the normal like people grieving. I mean, we see people right. grieving or people just being very kind of somber, but the main characters are just like the people that enough. would be grieving the most, the, yeah. you know, are the ones that don't believe that he's dead. And that's yeah, what, great. Yeah. Great yeah. point. That, that's kind of yeah. what I was getting at. Yeah. 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 Most of the other people who are there are really just to kind of pay their respects and, you know, and, and support the family and the friends who are close, we're closest to, to will. But yeah, it's interesting because, even his dad doesn't seem to care, you know, Lonnie doesn't, he's just, and we find out as you, as we, as we mentioned later, why that he's really just in this for some kind of financial gain. But yeah, it's, it's, it's overall, it's a great episode. It really propels the narrative forward and really kind of, as I mentioned in the opening, it kind of tees up the final showdown, if you will, or the final three episodes, which I think are just going to be, even more difficult for us to not progress on to the next episode because it, that, yeah. it seems like it's just all building and it's going to end with a bang. Yeah. But uh, the one last thing I want to mention is just after that scene that you mentioned where Hopper unscrews all the, the Christmas lights from Joyce's home and he, and he says, I think it's safe now. He says to her, you were right this whole time. You were right. And I, that's just mm. that gives me chills because it's just yeah. that it's that moment as i said where they finally are in sync and yeah. we end this episode where nancy and jonathan are in sync although nancy's missing you have hopper and joyce sort of in sync but the as you said the fellowship of the kids are not now they have sort of broken up and we yeah. have basically mike and dustin still together 11 has run off and What's 
Lucas, <laughs> Lucas, of course, ran off as well because you know he was in, he was embarrassed. He was probably hurt. I would imagine if he was flung that far and hit his head, he not not only would it be painful, but I'm sure he's he feels like oh this girl just beat me up basically. So I'm sure he's feeling embarrassed in front of his his friends, and mm-hmm. so he's his ego is bruised more than anything, most likely, sure. and he's and he's run off. So it's going to be an interesting situation to see how or if all these sort of separate story threads can kind of come together. Yeah, and they'll need to, I think, at this point because you've yeah. got buy-in from those three pockets of groups there. You've got yeah. They're all heading towards this idea you know, from different angles. And, and right. you're right about, about um, Hopper and Joyce. I mean, he validates her. And I think her facial expression really kind of you know, reciprocates that, that. Man, I'm so glad that I don't have to continue to live in this semi-denial because I know that this is true. So that was really but, good. And maybe she'll stop being so crazy because now she knows she's not crazy. You know, because I don't she's think finally. So. I think she's going to just <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Well, we'll have to see. Yeah. yeah. That's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. We're glad that you joined us. Um, Adam, what is coming up? Next episode, chapter six, the monster. So that's pretty self-explanatory. Unlike this episode, which was a bit cryptic and uh, which I love. I love when episode titles can be really sort of surprising in where they come from. And you have to kind of watch the episode to understand the title. This clearly is in reference to the Demogorgon, unless there's another monster that we have yet to meet. I don't think so, but you, you know, you pointed out in earlier episodes that there might be more than one monster. So maybe there is, I don't know. The monster sister. That's what the full title of the episode is. The monster sister. No, it's not that. (laughs) In any case, I'm excited to, to get into that. So, and it's directed again by the Duffer brothers. So they're back. Good hands there. Yeah. (laughs) It's been good hands all the, all the way through Duffer brothers or somebody. So yeah. Happy there. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us for this conversation. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.